Hey, welcome to Sweden in Transition, the podcast that meets change makers in Sweden. I am Sonia Lehmann and today I'm very happy to meet Albert Nostrum at the Stockholm Resilience Center. Albert is Deputy Director of GRADE, Guidance for Resilience in the Anthropocene. Hi, Albert. Welcome. Hey, Sonia. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. <laughs> First, can you introduce us to the Stockholm Resilience Center, where we are today? It's, a, it's an institute at the Stockholm University. It was started about 10 years ago by two very well-known profiles, scientists Carl Folke and Johan Rockström, who had the vision to start an institute which become a world-leading place to tackle some of the biggest sustainability challenges. And it was funded by a Swedish funding agency called Mistra uh, with the mandate, with the aim and the mission to become a world-leading interdisciplinary research institute. And with that, I mean, it's a place where you have ecologists, economists, social scientists all working together to try and solve some of the big challenges um, of our world. The name is Stockholm Resilience Center. What does it mean, resilience? Resilience has become this buzzword, like sustainability. A lot of people use it. A lot of institutes use it. A lot of uh, companies use it. The United Nations use it. The way we think about resilience at the Stockholm Resilience Center and in the networks connected to the Resilience Center is as resilience being the capacity of a system. And the system can be an ecosystem, it can be a social system, it can be an economic system. The capacity of that system to be able to bounce back under periods of stress and disturbance. So if you have a disturbance, for example, in an ecosystem, a fire in a forest, resilience would be the capacity of that forest to regenerate and be able to absorb the disturbance of the fire and then grow back to becoming a forest again. A social system would have a different type of suite of disturbances. It would be the political turbulence. It could be revolutions. But the resilience of that system would be its capacity to be able to bounce back following some kind of disturbance. So in a nutshell, that's, that's what resilience is. It's a capacity to be able to bounce back and to be able to transform and adapt to change as change happens. The Stockholm Resilience Center is known for the nine planetary boundaries research or study. Can you talk us through that? Going back to the definition of resilience, it's its capacity to deal with pressures and disturbance. Within that idea is the notion of thresholds or boundaries. So a system can have a specific breaking point, if you wish. And until that point, it can absorb stress and disturbance. Once that threshold has been crossed, that capacity gets lost. With the planetary boundaries, it was an attempt to see if we could identify specific breakpoints or thresholds on a global scale. So a bunch of scientists got together from, you know, oceanography, atmospheric sciences, ecology, economy, and tried to identify what are the critical boundaries of the Earth system. And given the knowledge we have today, those planetary boundaries that you talk about were identified. And they are kind of... Uh, an insurance level, a safe operating space of the Earth system. So if we stay within those boundaries or that safe operating space, the Earth system will remain in its relatively stable condition that has allowed humanity to thrive over the past 10,000, 15,000 years. If we cross those boundaries, the risk increases of a lot of uncertain effects happening, and we might find ourselves in conditions that we've never seen before. 
Can you illustrate with boundaries that we have crossed? It's difficult to know exactly which ones we've crossed, but we have some really good indications. Land use change being one of those. So one of the boundaries is how much of the Earth's surface can actually be changed by human activities like building cities and building roads and growing food in big uh, monoculture agriculture. We seem to have crossed that boundary. Again, we don't have many earths to do experiments, so we base our knowledge of where we place that boundary on smaller scale experiments where we know if we change a forest by this much, by growing agriculture, that forest loses its resilience. So we try and draw conclusions from those small scale experiments on a global scale. And given the knowledge we have now, we seem to have come to a position where we're actually, we've changed too much of the Earth's surface, changing a lot of the critical processes that help maintain the Earth system in a, in a stable condition, which is why a lot of scientists are not talking about the need to change agriculture practices or the need to stop deforestation. It's because we're getting beyond to, to an extent which is quite worrying above that boundary level of how much land we can change on the Earth's surface. Another one is climate change. Climate change is another one. Setting that boundary, is, it's also difficult. But where we seem to be now is at a strong consensus. The amount of emissions we have in the atmosphere are way above those which should make us feel assured that we can actually maintain the Earth system in, in a stable configuration. We've pumped out emissions at levels that we haven't seen for maybe a million years We're seeing increased temperatures at rates which we haven't seen for a very or measured for a very, very long time. Um, and all of this is, is extremely worrying. Often the climate agenda is uh, taking the lead and we forget about biodiversity, but yeah, yeah. that's another boundary that has been crossed. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about this, um, these mass extinctions and they've happened in the past uh, linked to uh, different geological events, carbon dioxide emissions as well in the past, one of them being this classical one of the dinosaurs getting wiped out, is that uh, you basically have a reboot of uh, of the <laughs> of diversity, basically. You have a massive loss of uh, current diversity and then a kind of evolutionary reboot, which is a bit worrying given the debate that we have now of us actually being in the sixth <laughs> mass extinction. But it is, you know, it's measurable. We know these things. We actually know that we're having extinction rates today, which are 10 to a thousand times higher than the background rates, right? The exact measures really vary. But even if we take a conservative measure, then the amount of species we've lost in the past hundred years should have taken 800 to 10,000 years to have been lost given natural extinction rates. And these are under conservative measures of human-caused current extinction rates. So th there is really no doubt that we are in a massive, uh, big extinction. Uh, the question really is, how far can we go without seeing some serious consequences of this loss of diversity and whether we can actually get our act together <laughs> and do something about it? There is global policies, there's global processes out there. Uh, that have been discussed, that have been molded over the past 10, 15 years, but there needs to be action linked to those documents um, and those processes as they get discussed in the global arena. So maybe that's a good uh, transition to your role as a director of GRADE. Can you explain to us what is the GRADE and what do you do? Um, and so GRADE was born a bit as an answer to this huge demand in resilience thinking and how to operationalize resilience, like we talked about earlier. Um, resilience is it's a word that's becoming very common, both within the research arena, but also within political uh, spheres. 
and business spheres and NGO spheres. So there was a huge interest of, you know, how do we take this idea of resilience, this capacity of systems to bounce back under uncertainty um, and make it operational? What that means is how can we take that knowledge and use it on the ground to change things on the ground? What was interesting with GRADE was that it identified the demand, but also made a strong input in trying to broaden the scope. I think a problem which happens quite often, especially in the development sphere and in the conservation sphere, is that you get focused very much on the local scale, which is important. But what we know now is that the Earth system is extremely complex. It's extremely connected. We often talk about this term, the Anthropocene, the epoch of humanity, um, in the sense of that now humans are the, the main driving force of what's happening all across the earth. All the kind of earth processes are then driven by human activities. So you have a high level of connectivity, just focusing on the local scale without considering all these broad scale dynamics, biophysical sometimes, the effect of climate, but also economically, the effects of trade, the effects of human migration on different places in the world sometimes can lead to suboptimal projects on the ground. So GRADE was really trying to make resilience understandable and operational on the ground, while at the same time constantly lifting up the perspective to bring in these big global-scale phenomena and drivers and their role into the local. So quite a complex project, um, but under five years, quite successful. When you try to resolve a problem here, you can create another problem there. Do you have an example, some project you worked on? I have one example which is quite illustrative of these cross-scale connections um, is how sometimes large-scale hydrological cycles are connected from seemingly extremely distant places on the earth. So you have rain-fed agriculture in eastern Africa, which depends on quite predictable um, and circular rainflows coming approximately the same time every season. Recent modeling work has shown that these hydrological cycles are really dependent on what happens over in India. So the rainfall falling in Eastern Africa depends on what's happening in India. We have a lot of irrigation, so a huge amount of irrigated farmland, um, which causes a lot of evapotranspiration. So a lot of, you know, things coming up in the atmosphere, causing all these clouds to form, flying over to Eastern Africa and then raining down, which is an interesting connection. Now, what happens is under the guise of sustainability on a local scale, there's been a lot of discourse now in India to actually minimize irrigation because it has a lot of bad effects. You suck up a lot of groundwater, you cause a lot of contamination. It's not such an effective way of farming, for example. But they have this insidious effect of changing agricultural practices in India and the irrigation might then change hydrological flows and ultimately affect rain-fed agriculture in eastern Africa. Um, this is still unknown, but modeling work strongly suggests that this could be one of these big hidden risks um, that we have facing now in the Anthropocene with all these big connections. So it really opens up a whole new uh, box of potential problems as you work to build sustainability in one place in the world. You know, you have to start thinking and try to take into consideration what are the potential knockout effects that could happen in different places. So not just in the location you're trying to build sustainability in. What were your conclusion between India and Eastern Africa? What should they do? <laughs> <laughs> 
I think what's really required to do is communication and collaboration between uh, between different parts of the world. And this is also interesting given this new wave of political far-right uh, governments and movements around the world who talk a lot about, you know, strong focus on the nation, strong focus on the region, which really goes against the grain of what really is the way to collaborate out of these big systemic Anthropocene sustainability problems that we have. I don't have a clear solution as to what we should be telling the Indian government and the East African, apart from these connections probably exist. And you can't be solving them without at least communicating with one another, getting weather services between the two regions to talk to one another, getting agronomists in the two regions to talk to one another, politicians from the different regions to talk to one another. And I think this is symptomatic. I think this is a strong signal and a strong example as to what kind of systems of collaboration we need to solve some of these big problems we've been talking about, like climate change and biodiversity. I really don't think the model of nations locking them down is going to help us solve these big problems because of these extreme interconnections all across the world. Even if you focus on your nation at some point, you will have migrations to deal with, you will have This yeah. is just reality. Reality is based on those uh, interconnections you were mentioning. Absolutely. There is a consensus now and people agree and mm. it's quite obvious that climate changing and, and people want to speak about the solution rather mm. than the problem. And I think that's why you created this program, Seeds of Good Anthropocene. It began a bit of a side project for a lot of us involved. About six or seven years ago, I think, we were... Um, different constellations of researchers discussing the need to start thinking about bright spots. A lot of us were slightly wary of the dystopic nature, a lot of the discourse and a lot of the spheres we, we're in. It's very easy to become very dystopic if you work with sustainability issues. The problems are real, the problems are massive, the challenges are, are huge. At the same time, in our different spheres of work, a lot of us were also seeing a lot of amazing things happening on the ground. And so we got thinking, would it be possible to start document these bright spots, start collecting them in some systemic way, start analyzing what are some of their uh, common features. And we wrote a paper which has been quite influential and has really kind of stimulated a lot of interesting discussion. You know, that caused us to get a bit more funding. And uh, basically what, we, what we're doing now in different parts of the world is, is collecting these seeds. We have a central database. We, we keep it pretty open. We haven't been exclusive. I mean, it has to be something that exists today. It can't be something, you know, out of your imagination. But an, an initiative, a way of doing, a way of farming, a way of building uh, new technology that you think can contribute to a better Anthropocene, send it to us. Describe it. We have a, like an online questionnaire that people can fill in with different details of this of this initiative. And we collect it in a database. And so we have a, a quite a good The database now of, of these seeds. Um, and we've been analyzing them as well. We've been having master students and postdocs and PhDs to dig a bit deeper into these um, seeds, to travel to where these seeds have been collected from, to actually speak to the people behind them. We're trying to understand what's the transformative potential of these seeds. We're taking theory around transformations and coding it into the database to try and get understanding, can we be able to foresee which of these seeds, given the different characteristics they have, will have the biggest transformative potential. We've also been using these seeds in, in scenarios, which is some of the most fun work, I think. And, and this comes from the idea that 
in order to move towards a more sustainable future, you actually need a, a vision of, of where you're going. There's a lot of work uh, being done on that, but there's surprisingly very few positive futures. Um, so we use these seeds in participatory processes. And with that, we mean we actually have people outside of academia as part of our small teams developing these scenarios. So we have artists, we have representatives of the different initiatives themselves. Uh, we go away for three, four days, use a lot of actually well-developed and well-tested scenario developing methods, but we do this together to actually articulate positive futures. But then we also play around in a dynamic sense, trying to understand what are some of the barriers and some of the current things that are stopping us from moving towards that future. And this is actually, it sounds like fun and games, but if you actually engage in these exercises with policymakers and people that can actually make decisions like we've had, we've actually brought in policymakers to this process, it becomes a very powerful tool to break mental lock-ins of how we can actually move towards the future. There's a huge literature in the human cognitive capacity in moving towards better futures. And we're actually quite bad at thinking far ahead in the future. So by sitting together with policymakers, with artists, with representatives of the seeds, researchers, gives actually quite a powerful vehicle to inform in a very playful but still rigorous way of how we can actually move towards more positive futures. It's been, like I said, uh, it began as a side project, um, but it's become now quite an established research network all around the world with its base here at the SRC, McGill University in Canada and the CST hub down in South Africa. You probably know uh, Sapiens, the book of Harari. Mm, He's yeah. explaining that uh, humanity has always progressed with stories. Exactly. The capacity of federating and engaging people around a common mm. dream. Religion w were doing that in the past, and then science, mm. and then maybe uh, the American way of life. That was our dream for the past uh, 50 years or so. And now we're lacking another dream. Yeah. And today when we speak about sustainability or the Anthropocene, people think there is going to be less of our comfort. We need to sacrifice things. But unless we turn it around and see what we are aiming for mm. and what good life we're moving toward, we're not going to be able to engage people. So mm. we need that new dream. Exactly. What's interesting with the, with the SEEDS project and has been a big shift in my way of thinking is actually it really concretizes this notion that the future isn't going to be built up with one specific set of values or one specific set of elements. It's going to be built up by a mix of different things. And that's one thing we're really exploring. For example, the future is going to be a mix of some technological elements, some economic elements, some more uh, conservation elements, maybe some religion, religious mixes, It's going to be a mix of these things. Um, and we can't be absolutist in just saying, well, science has the dominant role in solving um, or setting up a pathway towards a better future. That's, that's kind of been shown in the past as to be quite an unsuccessful way. Um, science alone can't do it. You need the help of a bunch of other different streams in society. And the SEEDS project has really helped us understand how this mix, this uh, amalgamation of different elements might together build something um, better um, in the future. It made me think of this TV series called Black Mirrors, where you see all the drawbacks of technology. It's very dystopian series. 
But we need the opposite. And I think there is a project called Bright Mirrors because a lot of people also think it's just saying no to science, saying no to progress and comfort and going back to a minimalist, uh, old-fashioned way of living. Yeah. And, and of course, that's not attractive to many and showing that it's going to be a complex new way of living, but very attractive on many levels. Absolutely. Can you tell us some examples of a positive seed? It's of good Anthropocene. A lot of the seeds in there are about new ways of producing food, for example. And I think food has, for many different reasons, become some kind of central focal leverage point in how we can actually solve a lot of these big challenges we have, climate change and biodiversity. The way we grow our food has massive consequences. Um, agriculture is a huge a driver of climate change is a huge driver of biodiversity loss. But in its current mode, we can do things differently and it can actually have a lot of positive effects, um, both in growing more nutritious food, but also food that's actually grown in ways that has benefits to the natural ecosystems around it that actually can enhance biodiversity, um, that actually can reduce emissions. Sometimes with a focus on technology, sometimes with a focus on, you know, just changing agricultural practice towards more agroecology. And it's this diversity in what they're doing, which is really the interesting thing. Then a lot of seeds which are focused on technological change. And like you say, I mean, technology is very often seen as the silver bullet that's going to save us. It saved us in the past, but there's a, there's a huge insidious backside to technology. It can have massive positive effects, but without a strong anchoring in some kind of normative or vision of what it's going to be used for, I think it can be hugely destructive. And it, there's a lot of work showing that blind use of technology just leads to new, more complex problems just further along down the line that we don't know about. But, you know, again, you can't just throw seeds which are technological focused out of the, the scene. They need to be there. We need to understand what role they will play. Some that five years ago were quite controversial, artificial meat. Now, it, you know, it's still quite controversial, like beyond meat. So it's growing meat in laboratory. Yeah, right? basically. Working with the DNA and... In, in, in different ways. Some are plant-based. You basically grow artificial meat from, from some kind of plant derivative. Other methods just take in initial cells from an animal and then grow meat out of that. So it's different methods of just getting to the same, the same product, which is meat, a burger, you would say, or a steak, which hasn't had to go through this whole process of... Uh, growing the cattle, watering it, feeding it, causing a lot of emissions to happen, um, and then ultimately ending up on your table. So it's like taking shortcuts, which might lead to some sustainability gains. So another category then of, of seeds are these more technological focused ones. Then there's others more focused on changing people's values and relationships to nature, which become a bit more fuzzy, but are just as important. So it's initiatives that actually, for example, might try to uh, realign school systems or daycare systems to give kids more access to nature and let them be out a bit more just to be able to kind of grow some stronger connection and relationship to nature. The effects of those seeds are more difficult to have, but there's again a growing literature showing that the disconnect our current society has with how nature works, with the, the biophysical processes underpinning all of our lives, right? We can't forget that, that even though we live in a very modern society, many of us, more than half of the world's uh, population lives in cities, we're still dependent on ecosystems for the food we eat, for the air we breathe, the water we drink, right? But being able to close that barrier, make the connection a bit more explicit and more direct again to understand how we're dependent on nature is quite a powerful way of doing things. So 
then you have this third category of seeds are the ones that try and change people's values, people's behaviors, um, and so on. The disconnect is explaining everything. Yeah. We don't feel we are part of nature. We think nature is here to provide. Mm. Unless we change this vision of the world mm. and we realize that we are part of nature, then we are not going to be able to change the way we behave. No, exactly. And there's been huge progress, mainly through this notion of ecosystem services, which is also a term which is becoming quite mainstream now. Basically, ecosystem services talks about the different benefits um, provided by nature to uh, to humanity. There's been a lot of controversy around the term and whether it just monetizes, you know, puts a monetary value on things that we shouldn't just be putting a value on. I mean, like some things do not deserve a tag of, uh, of a dollar sign on them. But it is, it's more complex. I think the notion of ecosystem services um, captures multiple values and it's doing that slowly but surely. And now you have entities like IPES, which is just like the IPCC around climate change. The IPES is an intergovernmental panel around biodiversity and ecosystem services. So now that exists. It's gathering momentum. It's trying to connect to explicit policy processes in order to actually lift up this this dependence on humanity on ecosystems and ecosystem services on an explicit level on a global scale as well. So things are happening, but again, maybe too slow than what many of us would, would like to. But definitely this, this reconnecting people to the biosphere, that's, that's a mantra that, um, Carl Folke, the, one of the founders of the Resilience Center is constantly going on about. Um, his, his point is that we can devise technologies, we can get a better understanding on the science domain, but none of that will really have an effect unless we really tackle the big challenge of reconnecting society to the biosphere again. Um, another good example, which is on a completely different level, is is a new initiative called the CBOS Initiative, which is um, an attempt where researchers have identified the most powerful fishing companies in the world, the, the fishing companies that have the biggest effect on the world's oceans, basically, in the sense of catching a lot of fish and really distorting food webs in the oceanic realm. And instead of just painting them up as the bad guys that we shouldn't be working with, that we should we just be naming and shaming, they've actually reached out and said, well, how about we try and build something together? We as the scientists giving you the rigorous knowledge behind it, but you as the fishing companies being the ones that can actually enact change. And it's been an extremely interesting journey that's been happening for the past four years now these big fishing companies now actually taking it seriously in 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 many ways actually understanding their role within the biosphere realizing that we have a huge effect that we've kind of known about before but it's never been explicitly articulated the way these researchers have done it for us so now we understand our role in the biosphere what can we do to actually change things and maybe be part of something which moves the world's oceans in this case towards something more sustainable and more healthy. It's a super interesting process. So you see this, the strategies of reconnecting society to the, to the biosphere can happen on many, many different levels. It's really the image I have from the Stockholm Resilience Center is this combination of ambition and collaboration. So no compromise on the urgency, but using collaboration, being inclusive in the way we work together to tackle the problem. So that's one way of, of addressing the problem, mm. working with politics and companies and not 
blaming and shaming, but taking everybody on board and changing the system from the inside. Mm. And then there is another trend <laughs> from the bottom, bottom up with Greta in Sweden, with more radical approach. People thinking that we need to turn the system upside down, really. Yeah. And I think the two are actually useful and maybe they will join and meet halfway at mm. some point. What do you think more of the revolutionary trend happening at the moment? That's a difficult one. I mean, revolution is, is a term which shouldn't be thrown around lightly. I mean, we know from the past that revolutions can have some extremely powerful effects, but they can also be quite disruptive and destructive. What's more interesting is whether this big social awakening can be harnessed in ways that could lead to transformation, which doesn't lead to a lot of the negative consequences of big-scale, unplanned revolution, right? Big research institutes are talking about this as being the potential of a social tipping point. Finally, knowledge, action is, is moving away from the fringes towards the mainstream. We should find optimism in these times when we often focus about the inaction of, of politicians and the slowness of processes such as the climate cops. I am more like to focus that these changes happening on the social side, connected to a lot of progress happening also in how business and the private sector talk about the need for transformation and the need for transition as being signs that we're actually in some kind of transformative space. Change is happening. Hopefully it's going to happen in ways which lead to equity, not a massive disruption to things. I think no one wants that. We often oppose social problem and ecological problem, mm. but they are related. Yeah, yeah. How can you illustrate that uh, often an ecological problem is also a social problem? The way we, we operate and think about resilience is that the systems we assess and analyze and try and understand resilience of our social ecological systems. It's systems where the social and the ecological are embedded. They're intertwined. You can't really separate them. You know, you do something in one, it's going to affect the other. You do something in the social, it affects the ecological. And we try to illustrate that through illustrative case studies of how that's the case. Um, a simple one would be coastal fisheries. Um, they're small scale in East Africa, for example, where you have uh, fisher folk fishing on a coral reef and using destructive fishing methods, basically which destroys the coral reef. That ultimately leads to fish stocks to start diminishing, right? Response then would be to either start fishing a bit more sustainably or try ramp up fishing pressure. What we've seen is usually fishing pressure increases through dynamite fishing, through more destructive ways of fishing. And that leads to even more loss of coral reef habitat, which is the homes for the fish, and fish stocks ultimately decline further. So you end up in this, this social ecological trap or um, because of different reasons on the social domain, um, also l lack of capital, lack of assets leads fisher folk to continue fishing hard their increase in fishing pressure leads to decrease in the fish stocks and then you get into this this cycle i think that's often an illustrative case which just shows on a local scale how tightly linked the social to the ecological is some farmers in our uh, western uh, countries they think they have no choice but doing monoculture because mm. they have debt so they have to pay the machine they're, they're locked but that's a short-term view because their asset is their land mm. their soil they are not nurturing their soil they will lose their source of revenue in the future 
Yeah. I'm always struggling with people who say, okay, you, you care about sustainability, but because you can afford it. I really strongly believe that it's not only a bohemian way of life. No, no. When you're doing your monthly or weekly errand, if you stop buying transformed products and less meat and start using fruit and vegetables mm. and that are local, it actually costs less money. Yeah. It's hard sometimes to convince people. And I think this uh, this critique that actions towards sustainability is uh, the luxury of a middle class in a northern setting, it, it's quite erroneous. I think it's quite wrong. Absolutely, there is a dominance in the narratives of what sustainability is coming from the global north and the institutes we have. But there's a huge amount of activity, a huge amount of stories which just haven't been unearthed in, you know, our different social media streams, in the literature, in the policy level happening in the global south, in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, massive movements, both within science, within activism, which are striving towards sustainability. So to actually kind of dismiss the desire towards a more sustainable future as being something which is just an element created in in some Södermalm uh, middle class uh, neighborhood is just completely wrong. I think then you're just having a very narrow perspective in it. And it's just worth to remind those people that say those things that no, actually, if you look up and it might be a bit more difficult for you to find those examples, but they exist that this kind of move and this awakening towards uh, towards moving towards sustainability has massive history and massive uh, uh, movements in in you know, in, in the global south, in different levels of society. Absolutely. Maybe first and foremost, because they, they are the first to suffer from climate change in the south. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a hugely unequal uh, playing field of consequences when we talk about, you know, the, if we just take climate change, for example, there's existing evidence of it hitting the global south the hardest in the sense of, you know, the loss of yields in agriculture the loss of fisheries because of changes in how fish stock move because of warmer temperatures, more unstable weather and more unpredictable weather and extreme weather hitting. Uh, like recently, we had this massive storms in Madagascar and Mozambique, which still have massive consequences for people down there. But also in when we model the future, then it's also even more obvious that the big brunt of exposure to these risks are going to be taken by by people living often in coastal communities in the global south. That's why it's unfair. Climate Absolutely. change, northern countries are the source of the emission and the southern countries are suffering from it. Even though it starts to be sensitive now in, in the northern hemisphere with the lack of snow here in Sweden this year and and the temperature raising every summer more and more. Absolutely. And the fires we had in Sweden a couple of years ago. Greta is now the international personality on climate. Are you proud of uh, her being the personality that is leading the international community? What Greta is doing is, is fantastic. She's raised awareness in, in quite a beautiful way. She's not saying anything new. I think that's just very important to, to keep in mind. I've had comments from, uh, from friends and uh, close acquaintances who are a bit skeptical to the, this whole thing, basically saying that climate change is a recent fad, which is uh, a consequence of the Greta Thunberg effect. And I'm like, no, actually, this is a science that's been around for 150 years, sustainability science, not that far, but it's, 
you know, it's, it's a massive body of work. And basically what Greta is doing is she's just actually doing some good reading, contemplating, understanding, and then communicating it in a very effective way. Whether I'm proud to be Swedish, I'm actually, I'm, I'm proud to be part of a movement on a global movement of, of science, of activists, politicians, business people that are waking up, that are taking this seriously and are, you know, spending their, their daily lives and their work in, in different ways, trying to increase awareness, trying to understand how we can enact action on the ground, how we can generate new science, how we can generate better policies in order to re-steer pathway we're on towards something more uh, more sustainable maybe to conclude any book that you've read that you will think is useful i read a lot of science fiction there's one author who i would really recommend if people out there are interested in good science fiction and in good stories which link to climate change and the futures that climate change might bring to us which are not dystopic, they're not utopic, but are more in this kind of middle ground, which I think is where we're actually heading towards. We'll be muddling our way forward. Um, and that's Kim Stanley Robinson. He's written some uh, some fantastic books centered around both the near future and the f- faraway future on Earth under climate change. So, yeah. I've just read the Mars trilogy, which I would recommend. Red Mars, Green Mars and Blue Mars, which is uh, interesting in many different ways. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sonia. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks a lot to Albert Nordström for taking the time and thank you all for listening. Please let us know what you think of the podcast. Send us a comment or a review so more people can discover it. Hello. Hello.